Hello, my name is Benjamin Leonardo Jacobs, um, a.k.a. Leo the Lion. Thank you very much for joining me here at Subliminal Message Studios. Um, we have a very special broadcast for you today. Um, we're going to be digging back into history to inform the American public on where gun control actually uh, comes from, how it got its start. Uh, well, I guess we're not going to go far uh, that far back in time uh, we're going to stick specifically with America and uh, we're going to try to inform the American uh, the American public on where gun reform actually comes from where gun control actually comes from and the the racial roots it has and the Roman dialectic roots it has and what I mean by that is the See, a lot of people don't understand that back uh, during the, you know, the you know the Knights Templar days, if uh, you know the Knights time. I'm just gonna try to keep it as simple as I can. But a lot of people don't understand back in their days, they had uh, certain laws where if peasants were um, caught with swords, because back then swords that was an AR-15. Back in the medieval days, if a peasant was caught with a sword, they would get their heads uh, chopped off and a lot of them would get hung, quartered, and trialed. Uh, with no jury, uh, no evidence, no nothing. Just you had a sword, you are a peasant, so you are not allowed to have a, a means to protect yourself. But we're, we're going we're gonna to try to stay specifically with the colonies right here in uh the Americas, uh, and we also have three wonderful stories of Civil War stories, uh, one specifically of a, a soldier that is writing to his wife, and uh, let me tell you, all throughout the story, it just brings you on ups, downs, woes, and frowns, and it's, it's so enlightening. And another story is a story of a a Civil War, uh, James Longstreet, uh, or should I say, uh, a, a, a spy for a Confederate. Um, that was Henry Thomas Hamilton. And uh, where we want to get to that too, because that's this story um, within itself just shows the humanity of America's at that time. And then we want to also get to another wonderful and enlightening story that is dubbed the Sleeping Sentinel. And uh, I also want to get to, uh, sorry, I apologize. We do have a lot of information for you guys. I also want to get to a Washington Post that is from 1934, ladies and gentlemen. And this is, of course, during the Bonnie and Clyde days and the Dillinger days. Uh, Hollywood made it a... Hollywood made it a point to uh, gaslight the American public to make, and this also, this also helped with uh, uh, driving the youth to think murder is cool, and driving the youth to think serial killers are cool, and they want to understand them. But um, a, a lot of Hollywood uh, during that time, in an effort to glamorize uh, mass murders, what they did with Bonnie and Clyde is they produced to the public that Bonnie and Clyde was simply just two rogue. Um, Two rogue teenagers, if you will, that were out there just shooting up the streets and robbing people and stuff like that. Uh, well, the reality of that is, is that is the farthest thing from the truth. Um, 
Bonnie and Clyde were actually part of a very famous gang known uh, the, as the Barrel Gang. And uh, they were called the Barrel Gang because... I don't know if uh, I don't know if anyone knows this. I apologize, uh, but they're called the Barrel Gang because back in their day, uh, due to the uh, you know, heavy um, heavy police in the neighborhood, especially at the father's house, father's house of uh, Clyde, but what they used to actually do is they actually they'd stick messages in glass bottles and they talk to each other. Through glass bottles and barrels, clear barrel glass, and uh, you know they would let you know they 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 would um, you know with moonshine operations and uh, Bonnie and Clyde of course got very famous uh, going on the road in their uh, murderous rampage and but we all, we just have some uh, great information for you guys and uh, we also have a few clips. Um, one Pacific clip is of an ATF agent that's just so uh, snub. Uh, this is about from 12 years ago. But we have an ATF agent that's just no, uh, so snub, and he's just admitting on camera that he's just getting paid $150,000. And this is 12 years ago. This is back in 2010. And uh, he says how he gets paid $150,000 to do absolutely nothing. Not to uh, file the forms that Americans have put through or not to uh, help the American people, you know, the people that are just now getting involved with firearms. And, uh, they might have some things that they want to go over. They might have some, you know, questions, you know what I mean? And the ATF being the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, instead of being willing to help the American people out and inform them, you know, that's not why the ATF was put into place. If you ask the ATF about uh, them burning those 15 children that were still in the bunker and then bringing a tank over the over the bunker specifically because they knew the bunker was completely engulfed in flames and they put the tank over the bunker so they couldn't get out. If you ask them, they would say they have no idea what you're talking about. Specifically, the agent that shot the mother at Ruby Ridge while she was carrying a baby that was the same uh, agent that was involved in uh, Waco, Texas as well but we want to get to um, all of these things ladies and gentlemen but first and foremost I also I want to I want to discuss uh, the Highland Park shooting First of all, let me just say this: um, I, it is it is a very very um, it's it's a shame. All my prayers go out to them, but there's something more we can do other than prayers. And uh, while I'm going over this subject, I also want to mention that I don't care if you're if you're gay, straight. I don't mind about any of that. I don't I don't, I don't care. That's not that's not how I was raised. I, I honest I honestly do not care. It's just not how I was raised. Now, if you do, and if you see that in people, and that's the first thing you go to is, I wonder if they're straight, you know, gay or bi, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Whatever. I wonder if they're a zebra. I don't care. If that's the way you think, then you know you might have some problems. You know, you might be very judgmental. You may have been raised in a very judgmental family because that's the first thing you go to is judging. 
But I want to include the fact that this um, uh, shooter uh, was another um, cross-dressing LGBTQ brainwashed citizen that was planning for weeks to go to this 4th of July parade and uh, shoot the living crap out of people. Now, there was a shooter, uh, apparently, like, like I said, witnesses are still reporting that there was a shooter on the roof as well. That's not re being reported anymore. And what did I tell you guys with my last up, uh, last upload when we covered it? And we, and we, and we even, and we even like read the actual transcripts from the witnesses at the time that were taking the police report or the police, the police transcripts that were talking to the witnesses. Several witnesses saw a shooter on the roof that was shooting as well as a shooter on the ground. And now reports that are coming out that there were bombs going off at the 4th of July parade as well. So, very, very, very spooky shit. And this is, I don't want to say this is exactly what I was warning everyone, everyone about because we're only... Uh, not even 48 hours into this uh, situation, ladies and gentlemen. But I am sticking with what the witnesses are saying, and um, I've made sure to copy the original, the original police, uh, the, the original police trans transcripts and the original reports that were reported on by, um, I believe it was uh, Chicago, you know, it was Detroit Tribune that I was reading off of. Well, I have it somewhere. Now, it doesn't matter, but I have the actual article that I was reading off of, the, the unredacted one, the one that has not been changed. I have looked at the article now, and I am not shitting you. They changed it. So, once again, I know for a fact that they're changing articles. They're reporting on stuff when, I, I, it's almost like when the actual reporter is sending the transcripts out to their, you know, out to their, um, journalists or whatever whoever's whoever's making the article you know what i'm saying i feel like that person is saying it for what it is like he's saying it exactly for what he's being told by the anchor and the people on the ground and then they have you know another person you know what i'm saying come over and look over that article and be like okay so you have to change this change this change this don't change the situation but just change the wording and that's how they uh use words to spell you that's where spelling comes from but um, a lot of a lot of crazy stuff, guys. And you realize how the left wants to focus on the you know the the gun problem. You know what I'm saying? They want to always they just want to focus on well, it's a gun, it's a gun violence issue. You know, well, no, it's it's a leaving an entire generation feeling hopeless and building up their anxiety to the point where they feel like they have no release. It's about cutting off food supply and then blaring about it. And then and then, then blaring about it, and then and not only and then and then not only blattering about it, but lying about it to the public. When teenagers are going to the stores, what they're not stupid. No matter if they're on the left side or on the right side. Well, I mean, let me correct myself. They might be stupid. They just let me just say this. It doesn't matter on the left side or the right side. Teenagers are going to stores, and even they know something is going on. You know, it's not rocket science science to see when inflation is taking into effect and all of this and all of this is done through through the mechanism of driving a narrative that controls what people get mad about it's how it's it's literally what they do guys we have certain groups that specifically operate on those stance alone 
So, um, uh, just, but just to stay on point, ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I do um, all prayers out to those. But like I said, there's something that we could do to indeed stop these mass shootings, ladies and gentlemen. And I, I want to cover that, and I do believe it's education. I believe it's education. I believe that if we revamp and go back to uh, driving our educational systems back into an educational system that thrives off of intellect and driving intellect and intelligence instead of socialization uh, and democrat democratic socialization and um, dog training, I think we can introduce and reestablish a new form of common sense into the young mind, giving them the tools to know what guns are not only not, not just do like I like you know but I, I want them I, I would I would think that we can give the youth the tools to know what guns are actually for and show them and show them guns in a different light where they only where not only do they not where they see it from good people wielding guns good people using guns because right now for so many years and generation upon generation it's always been Whenever the youth, even my generation, especially during the 90s, um, the only time the youth has seen a gun is when it's being used in a criminal's hands. And then and in the media, whenever there's groups of, you know, peaceful citizens walking around with guns, you know what I mean? The media goes out of their way to shun them. And then they'll add race into it. So either way, and, and you know what, let's say, and, and for the benefit of the doubt, let's say those groups are racist, right? Let's say they are. But either way that goes, what that tells to the youth, what that says to the youth is guns are bad. You know what I mean? It, either way, it's a clear message to the youth that guns are the problem. Guns are bad. You shouldn't have a gun. But when you're getting robbed and raped and, you know, and stabbed and jabbed and all this other crap, you know what I mean? You're going to wish you had a freaking firearm, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, you know, um, I, I do want to get to this news, guys, because like I said, um, we just have just just some wonderful things to get to, guys. Um, uh, a great special report for you guys. So without further ado, let's get into it. So starting off, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the first acts that was put into place by the British colonists. Um, this is during the French and Indian Wars. Indian Wars. Um, this was a 1640 in Virginia. Uh, this was put in. This is what was put into the legislation that all such free mulattoes, blacks, and Indians shall appear without arms, being a collection of all the laws of Virginia from the first session of the legislature in the year 1619. And then in 1712 in Virginia, it was an act for preventing blacks insurrection. A total gun ban, ladies and gentlemen. That was because uh, 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 during this time, one of the top slave owners, uh, one of the uh, one of the most prominent slave owners in America, was a black man, and, and um, having massed such a big amount of, uh, of his own people of using them as slave owners and renting them out to white colonists in the South and stuff like that that were building up their plantations. Well, he, he, he was deciding, he started, he was getting hip to the Southerners actually buying, or what he thought was buying his, you know, his fellow, you know, his fellow um, black people for a cheaper price than what he wanted to charge 
So he started to charge the Southerners, you know, um, you know, a lot more for, you know, to meet his own people and stuff like that. And that's when the colonists just said, no, you know, we're just going to kill you and make you make you our own slave. That's exactly uh, what happened. So then in 1712 in South Carolina, there was an act for the better ordering and governing of blacks and slaves. This is a statue at large of South Carolina, ladies and gentlemen. And all this is issued, you know what I mean? You guys can go look this up for yourself, you know what I mean? It's all documented, but this is this is where gun control kind of starts in. And like I said, guys, this is all these are all done through um and and you and you'll see what I'm talking about further down the line as we go. But this is all done through the belief that this human being should not be held accountable as a citizen and if you are poor it was a group full of eugenic believing southerners and and, and eugenic believing northerners that were pushed pushed far north that still believed deeply in segregation uh, that's that's where that's where we get kind of the Bolshevik uh, reasoning from. But um, that still believed in segregation, but they did not believe in treating blacks as if what they called uh, or, what, or what they believed is they felt bad. A lot of a lot of Northerners, a lot of eugenic uh, rhinos is what they're what we call them nowadays. Uh, but back then they were um, known as the eugenic Republicans. But these guys believed in peace for the black community they they felt bad for the black community so they believed that they it was their duty to control the black community where it went and you know how it moved and stuff like that but i'm just giving you a little history ladies and gentlemen um and then um uh due to these acts during uh six uh during 1712 in virginia and 1712 in south carolina that's when um in 1791 that's when you had um Groups like you know the Riflemen and uh, the No Name Men, um, real patriots of America, that pushed uh, for the Second Amendment. And uh, of course, the Second Amendment reads like this: a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's very very simple, very very straight to the point. Now. This also called uh, for their enrollment of the United States militia groups. And uh, in 1792, the Ununiform Militia Act of 1792, this called for the enrollment of every free, able-bodied male citizen between the ages of 18 and 45 to be in the militia and specific and uh, specified that every militia member was to provide himself with a musket or a firelock, bayonet, and ammunition. Now, um, when this provision was first put into context, we understand that a lot of uh, 
a lot of things were redacted and a lot of things were changed when it was first written up. When it was first written up, this did not include anything about race. It did not include any kind of black terminology. It was not, uh, um, or color terminology. It was not until about a week after that, uh, a, uh, such men, a name as um, Aaron Burr and uh, James Wilkinson and, and a, a bunch of others, ladies and gentlemen, that were all heavy uh, Southern believers that pushed to, um, that pushed to elude and to put blacks, eluding blacks being part of the well-regulated militia. And that was soon changed uh, further down the line. Uh, and we're going to get to that as well because, you know what I mean, uh, great men such as the, the know-nothing men and the riflemen that were in the uh, the middle parts of America, uh, specifically right here in uh, the state of Nebraska, decided enough is enough and we are not talking about this. We want action. So, and um, this, which brings me to the uh, my next point is uh, 1806 in Louisiana. Governor James Wilkinson is uh, key partners in the Burr conspiracy. Aaron Burr pushed President Jefferson to appoint Wilkinson as a governor during the Louisiana Purchase in 1805. And, uh, if you don't know anything about the Louisiana Purchase and how significant that is, especially uh, when it comes to Nebraska, then I'd advise you to look that up for yourself. Now, um, Aaron Burr, uh, he was who, uh, the man who famously shot Alex Hamilton. But that's uh, what that's exactly what the the mainstream mainstream education wants you to focus on. The most important thing that Aaron Burr did was he was the original founder of the KKK, along with Democratic State Senator Bayard, and it was great men like Lewis Merle that fought the KKK in the White League throughout the years of 1870 and the early years of 1890 and continued to expose the corruption in that state where the Supreme Court justices were highly democratic and highly involved into the secret societies such as the KKK which back then operated secretly um, and the White League which operated even more secretly but we'll get into all those um, ladies and gentlemen, especially with Aaron Burr, ladies, if if, if I if um you want to look up Aaron Burr, then go ahead and look up the Burr conspiracy, and you'll see notations where they say um, no one knows if Aaron Burr had forty men or seven thousand men. Um, a lot of reports uh, came in say, saying that he had over seven thousand men. Well, those reports, well, indeed, maybe uh, maybe not seven thousand, but those reports were around there. And like I said, Aaron Burr was the original founder of the KKK. He was the original founder of uh, what would become the KKK. He, you know, it's kind of where they set up the Southern uh, Southern Army. But just look that up, ladies and gentlemen, and um, you know, it's, it's a it's a great story to look into. But uh, let's get back into it. So, um, uh, eighteen nineteen in uh, South Carolina, uh, there was. The act of December 18th in 1819 that prohibited prohibited slaves outside the company of whites or without written permission from their master from using or carrying firearms 
unless they were hunting or guarding the master's plantation. So this is one of the which is, and, and this comes these type of laws come from the Roman dialect, from the Roman Roman dialect of uh, prelude. Like this all comes from there uh, from from these type of old uh, laws that were put into place to subjugate and to minimize any kind of insurrections. I guess is what they would call them, but any kind of revolutions from poorer people. So they introduce laws like this, you know what I mean? This is where a lot of these, um, a, lo a lot of the Southerners were getting their ideas from, you know what I mean? They were getting them from the British, you know. Um, it's a well-known fact that the Southerners were in a co were in discussions with the Queen of Britain uh, at the time, uh, during the Civil War especially, is specifically what I'm talking about, where Great Britain was uh, once again caught trying to um, take back or at least take back half of uh, America lo and behold I do believe they did through infiltration now in uh, 1825 in Florida the an act to govern patrols 1825 acts of Florida section 8 provided that white, white citizens patrol shall enter all black houses, suspected places, and search for arms and other offensive or improper weapons, and may lawfully seize and take away all such arms, weapons, and ammunition. Section 9 provided that a slave might carry a firearm under this statute either by means of weekly renewable license or from the presence of their master. Now, that legislation was uh, put into effect by Democratic, uh, I'm sorry, Democratic um, William Pope DeVille. He was uh, Florida's first civilian governor. And five years later, he was elected Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Florida's Freemasonry, Freemason Lodge. And uh, you'll see why as we uh, uh, go down this adventure. So another act was passed in 1828 in Florida. This was the permit to carry guns of court approval. Now during this time, the rhino and the eugenics believer, such as David Hazard, Put in this uh, implement, implementation. Now, uh, Florida went back and forth on the question of licenses for free blacks twice in 1828. Uh, Florida enacted provisions providing for free blacks to carry and use firearms upon obtaining a license from a justice of the peace. But what would happen is, is they would go to these uh, sheriffs, or you know what I mean, the cops. They'd go to the sheriffs, they'd go to uh, the judges, and they'd ask for a permit. And the judges, uh, believing in segregation at the time, deeply in the uh, uh, deeply in the South, but it was really, really pushed. Uh, the gun permit idea was really, really pushed through 
by name may uh, by a Democratic man named William M. McCarty. Uh, now he later sided with the uh, Confederates when the Civil War broke out. He was uh, one of the first ones that started bringing up the idea of issuing gun permits to the slaves. And like I said, he got that from the uh, Roman Draconian dialect from ancient Rome. Where once again, knights used to cut off uh, peasants' heads if they were ever caught with a sword. Because at that time, swords were basically their form of AR-15. That's what a sword was back in the medieval days. It was an AR-15. Not physically. Like, I mean, I, I probably should go into detail about that. I don't mean physically. I don't mean like the anatomy of it. No, I mean a sword to a peasant or to a knight was the same as an AR-15 is to a cop or a civilian. It's the same thing. Right? So that's... That's just that's all I'm trying to say with that. I don't want to get taken out of context, and then you know what I mean. I have all the libtards coming here and say, "Oh, you think a, a sword is an AR-15?" No, it's not. Not what I'm saying at all, buddy. Um, now, in 1831, there is the Act of January. Uh, Act in January, uh, Florida reappealed all provisions for a firearm license uh, for free blacks, and that was like I said, due to um, men like Democratic men like. William M. McCarty uh, that really, really, really did not want any other people other than whites to have firearms. Even some, uh, even some of the French uh, civilians, he. Uh, you can go back to old stories of him uh, quoting even some of the French, poor French uh, colonists that were occupying some of the lands at that time. Even he believed they did not uh, need firearms. They were not deemed to have firearms because they're, quote unquote, just as poor and as unhealthy as the blacks. Now, in 1831, in Delaware, there was a permit to carry if a, if the court approve if, if the court's approval. This legislation passed in December of 1831. Delaware required uh, free blacks desiring to carry firearms. And, uh, I'm sorry, uh, carry free blacks desiring to carry firearms to obtain a license from a justice of the peace. And like I said, this and this was pushed through by the Rhino Republican David Hazard that believed highly in eugenics. He believed highly in segregation. He actually uh, practiced eugenics with his own, you know, with with his own slaves. And he'd, you know, kick the, you know, get the man out of the house. You know what I mean? And f the wife, and you know what I'm saying? Have kids and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And it's not that he, uh, you know, uh, uh, believed that uh, blacks were beneath him. He just believed that blacks were self-destructing so the eugenic rhinos in the in uh in the north in the far far north started to push that's where the uh real push for segregation came you know uh got in from it wasn't really from the south it was from the eugenic rhino republicans in the north um, but um now in uh like i said now in 1831 in maryland in december the maryland entirely prohibited uh free Indians and free blacks from carrying arms. 
1831, the same thing in 1831 in Virginia. In December, Virginia entirely prohibited free Indians and blacks from carrying arms. Now, in 1833, Democratic Governor William Pope, in February 17, 1833, Legislation Law 2629 authorized white citizens to patrol and seize arms found in the homes of slaves and free blacks and provided that blacks without proper explanation for the presence of the firearms be summarily punished without benefit of a judicial tribunal. Now, um, William uh, Pope DeVille Like I said, you can, um, I apologize, I'm looking through my notes uh, that I have right here. Like I said, you can kind of see on on why William Pope DeVille um, uh, moved up to be a Grand Master, uh, law, uh, uh, master of the Grand Lodge in Florida is because he was pushing through laws uh, such as this, guys. Now, in um, 1833 in Georgia, they declared that it shall not be lawful for any free person of color in this state to own, use, or carry firearms in any description or whatever. Now, in 1840, complete gun ban for sales, an act of February 24th in 1840, made sales or delivery of firearms to slaves completely forbidden. And I also want to include the reason, if you're wondering, well, why do they keep on issuing, you know, different laws that say the same thing on gun permits, on, you know, delivery sales to, you know, um, uh, slaves or people that they deem slaves? Well, it's because at the time, uh, groups like the Sons of Liberty and the Northern Riflemen were smuggling firearms to the slaves in the South. So in an effort to combat that, uh, same thing they do nowadays, by the way, in an effort to combat that, they put in laws to make it completely illegal for any, you know, any other colonists coming from the north, where if they had a large amount of guns, well, now it's they made it illegal if they cross, you know, southern lines at the time, they can just strip all those firearms. It doesn't matter if it's a white man or not. They would take all the firearms from them in an act to supposedly prevent them from giving them to the slaves in the south. So thanks to groups like Sons of Liberty and the Northern Riflemen, and these are all those you know crazy right-wing groups that they tell you are racist, but they don't want to tell you the actual history of why these groups are, why they're going after these groups so much. And as soon as you actually really, really do start reading into history, you come to find out, wow. I mean, wow. You talk about some true heroism. I mean... You talk about some real brainwashing that we've been under. You know what I mean? Most of these laws, most of these things, I guarantee most of you have no idea about. And why And why these laws were being introduced, why they kept on repealing these laws, why they kept on reestablishing these laws into their system is because of these groups like Sons of Liberty, Sons of Liberty the Northern Riflemen, which became the NRA. 
it's not a myth. Uh, that's exactly where the NRA uh, got their stars from doing stuff like this. They were literally smuggling guns to the slaves in the South. You know, slaves uh, in um, you know in Florida and Delaware and Georgia and Maryland and North Carolina and South Carolina, Texas, all these states, ladies and gentlemen. It gets deep. It gets very, very deep, and it's and it's because of great men that were part of freedom of, of, of loving freedom communities that wanted every, that wanted every race to be free, to have a firearm, to protect themselves, to be independent, to be able to take care of themselves and govern themselves. Moving forward, ladies and gentlemen, because um, like I said, we do have a lot to get to. We probably have a, a couple hours of uh, getting all, all getting to all this information with the clips that we have and with the stories that we want to um, read through, guys. Because like I said, all this is very, very important. If we do not remember the past, we will be doomed to repeat it. So in uh, 1840 in Texas, there is an act of concerning slaves. Of the Texas Acts of 1850 prohibited slaves from using firearms altogether from 1842 to 1850. So the reason why they're including slaves, ladies and gentlemen, and we have to understand this. This is a, a probably not a known fact uh, to a lot of us, um, you know. Or if it is to you, then you know it's probably because you're um, you're actually a student of history, or maybe you just have some common sense since uh, reading um, uh, reading about gun control and the real roots of it. I don't know whatever your reason is, but that does not matter. Anyways, um, the reasoning for this uh, uh, prohibited slaves from using firearms altogether, one of the main reasons for this is is the militias and the men from the north, you know, the, the northern uh, riflemen and these other groups that did not believe in slavery. So they were running weapons to a lot of the... Uh, to a lot of the slaves in the South, uh, specifically in Texas and, you know, other, other states around there, they're just now getting formed. Um, but now in 1844 in North Carolina, it was a case in State versus Newsom, where the Supreme Court of North Carolina upheld a slave code law prohibiting free blacks from carrying firearms on the grounds that they were not citizens, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, this is... Uh, I also have a little um, information you want, uh, 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 for a little, or I guess a little uh, back history on that, if you will. Uh, so a lot of people have an understanding that these, uh, that this, this, these gun regulations, they didn't stop just with the firearms. Uh, we have to understand. So like the uh, democratic democratic senators out of Texas, and even some of the eugenic rhinos, uh, rhino Republicans in the deep north, were pushing things, legislations like. Um, uh, not just it wasn't just gir, uh, gun permits. They were they went even further than that. They wouldn't allow colored people to meet at night or meet in large groups. They wouldn't let them have their preachers uh, at their churches anymore uh, during this uh, during these times because they didn't want any uprising. Now, almost every single um, uh, Supreme Court uh, during the case I'm about to get to, which is a very famous case, um, was a Democratic or a member. Of a secret society, one of them being Opus Dei. 
We're going to get to that, ladies and gentlemen. And one of the another thing I want to include the reason why they're not saying um, specifically <clears throat> gearing this towards you know they're not using specific words like blacks, Indians. The reason why uh, in Texas at the time they're using the word slaves is because a lot of us don't understand that during the time uh, this act was put into provision, uh, eighteen forty, was slaves was not just black people. There were uh, heavy, heavy, heavy. There were a lot more Mexican slaves than blacks. A lot of people don't know that. A lot more Mex, a lot of Mexicans or Indians, I should say, a lot more of them were slaves uh, than uh, the blacks. It's just uh, the blacks in history. You know, they wanted to glamorize that. You know, they wanted to glamorize the slavery with the blacks. And I'm not pointing down. I'm not playing down any of this. Um, I'm just giving the facts for what they are. These are the facts. Okay, there are a lot more slaves in Texas that were actually uh, Indians or Mexicans, whatever you want to call them. There is a difference, I understand. Just roll with me here. Then uh, the black community in uh, Texas, guys, and there's a, a lot of different reasons for that, but uh, that's for another segment. Now, in 1844 in North Carolina, there is a, a state versus a Newsom, like I said, where the Supreme Court of North Carolina upheld a slave code law prohibiting free blacks from carrying firearms on the grounds that they were not citizens. Now, in 1845, uh, North Carolina, this was the made sale of delivery of firearms to slaves is completely forbidden. And this, and like I said, this is uh, all thanks to the northern, northern militias and the northern groups that were feeding firearms to slaves in the southern states so they could fight back against their oppressors. And this is also all building up. And you're, sorry, you're also going to see this all build up to the famous case of uh, Dred Scott versus Sanford, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to build up to that, guys, and we have a little information on on that too as well. A lot of a lot of like I said, details matter when we're getting into this. You know, a lot of people want to refer to the infamous court case of Dred Scott and Sanford, but they don't want to tell you about who the well, who is the Supreme Court judges like. Is it who the judges were like their moral during that time? Does that not have some true significance in this court case? I mean, if you have a bunch of like, you know, white slave owners during uh, Dredd versus Scott and they deem something, it, doesn't that like really, shouldn't that really, really say um, uh, heavy amounts to the, ide the ideologies that were in the South and the ideologies that the Northern militias and the Northern groups were trying to bring in? You have to, a lot of people don't understand that the South were a lot, they based their government, they're a democratic based government. It was the Northerners that were basing their government off a of free republic and keeping good moral values in the tradition in our government. And we cannot base a government off of a, a group because oftentimes we've learned that the group can be used and created, a, created and be adjunted towards fascism. And we see that heavy and heavy amounts right now. But the people now, we they're just so they're just so dumbed down into not really, really understanding of where this history comes from, like where gun control comes from. You know what I mean? Where you know, um, uh, where taxes come from, and all these things. All these things truthfully matter. The details matter. And once you get into the history of it, you come to find out that wow, man, the Democratic Party in America has been nothing but a cancer to it. It has done nothing but spread divisiveness. And that's not to say the Republican Party have, have been any better. Like, you know, this is why I'm, I'm telling the facts for what it is. 
When I see these northern eugenic pushing right over Republicans in our history, I call them out right then and there because details matter. Who they are matters. What they believe in matters. Everything that they, you know, the, the more of the person matters. And um, like I said, guys, this is going to all build up to the famous uh, famous case, uh, case. That's why all these laws are being enacted in North Carolina and Florida and Georgia and we're gonna get Mississippi. We're going to get to all these because it all builds up to the famous case of Dred Scott versus Sanford. So in 1845 in North Carolina, um, uh, that made sale the delivery of firearms to slaves forbidden. In 1847 in Florida, this was January 6, 1847, this provided that white citizen patrols might search the homes of blacks, both free and slave, and confiscate arms held therein. And you have to also realize um, these were this was dur during the time where police reforms were highly, highly enacted into the white leagues, a secret society that operated completely out of the jurisdiction of what was going on in Congress or in the state legislation. They acted completely and out of that. Had nothing to do with the Constitution and what the Constitution was standing for. You see, a lot of the a lot of the Northerners, the Northerners were based and they were fighting these Supreme Court cases. There was great men like John Brown, you know, um, great men like Lewis Merle that was exposing these secret societies in the police in the court system especially I mean especially just look at look that man up that that's a great American patriot right there now um uh, getting back into it I do apologize now in 1848 in Georgia there was uh, Cooper versus Savannah Free, uh, which uh, the Supreme Court ruled that free persons of color have never been recognized here as citizens. And this is a key word. Free persons of color have never been recognized here as citizens. So when the Constitution was put into place, there were certain states that were not recognizing the Constitution for what it actually said in whole. And they were changing the Constitution and putting in and adding in words to fit their narrative. And this was going on, and you can read all about this. This is fact. These are his, This is dubbed in history. You can go back to Supreme Court issues where judges were literally saying, we're going to change or we're going to add in wording to the Constitution of America in order to fit our legislations at that time. Which then again, which then in turn makes you think, well, isn't like which which makes you think, well, damn, everything that's going on, you know what I mean, with the changing of definitions, with the changing of legislation, everything that's going on, ladies and gentlemen, this has all been done before. And this is exactly why we need to remember history, because if, like I said, if we are not remembering history, then we are sure as hell doomed to repeat it. Now, in 1848 in Georgia, um, like I said, this is um, uh, uh, also included. Uh, while free persons of color have never been recognized here, here as citizens, they are not entitled to bear arms, vote for members of legislature, or hold or to hold any civil office. So that's why one of the first, uh, if, if you don't know this, but this is another uh, well-known fact, the first president of the United States was black. He was the, the first continental uh, president of the United States. Yeah, he was black. So that and, and that did not sit well. Uh, one of the reasons for one of the reasons for that because they knew that that was not going to sit well with. Um, and there's a lot more, way more important reasons. But one of the more funny reasons because they did it. Uh, they did it specifically 
not only because they believed in they believed in the president at that time, but they did it specifically as they knew it was going to piss the Democratic side off. So they made it a point to uh, vote him in, which I think is freaking hilarious. Apparently, our founding fathers had a very, very big sense of humor. Now, in um, uh, 1852, in Mississippi, in Mississippi, an act on March 15th, 1852, this forbid ownership of firearms by f both free blacks and slaves. Because, once again, ladies and gentlemen, those northern states that were freeing their slaves, and a lot of, and, and if you and, and uh, if you actually read some of the biographies from some of the from some of the um, uh, uh, you know the the free to free to blacks back then, they were actually saying how they 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 didn't want they they never really left the plantation. They actually stayed on and worked with their you know with uh, what used to be their slave owners. You know what I'm saying? There was a there's and there's most of other stories that were just beautiful of uh, doctors in the north that we're patriotic doctors uh, by the way. In the north, that um, after you know what I mean, after um, you know what I mean, bringing that were bringing slaves, you know, through the underground railroad and stuff like that. But there, um, one Pacific story was of this doctor, and he fell in love, uh, Pacific, you know, specifically with this um, slave that he freed, and he fell in love with her, and they had kids, and uh, it was a, it, it was a, truthfully a very very beautiful story. And and, and you know what's really really. Um, beautiful about it i could go into detail but i'm afraid we don't have time but you know what the most beautiful thing about that is they did not do it because of their color uh, if you read the biography and the the, the, the uh, poems that they uh that the man wrote about his wife it had nothing to do with um the color of her skin he did it because he genuinely loved her it had nothing to do with the color of the skin it was because he genuinely Loved her. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get to the infamous um, Dred Scott versus Sanford. Ladies and gentlemen, now uh, Chief Justice Taney agreed if members of the African race were citizens, they would be exempt from the special police regulations applicable, applicable to them. It would give to persons of the black race full liberty of speech to hold public meetings upon political affairs, and to keep and carry arms wherever they want. U.S. Supreme Court held that descendants of Africans who were imported into this country and sold as slaves were not included nor intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, whether they were emancipated or not, and remain without rights or privilege ex ex uh, except such as those which the government might grant them, thereby upholding slavery, also held that it did not become that they did not become free until the Civil War started. And we're going to get to that too, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to get to that too, and not. And once again, like, 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 like this is, and, and I, uh, like in, in their own writing, um, you can see how the Southerners, the Supreme Court Southerners justice, uh, the Supreme Court justice uh, judges, were changing and altering the wording in the U.S. Constitution. And what was really, uh, what, and what was originally transcribed in the United States Constitution. 
Because in the original United States Constitution, uh, Constitution um, it never included race. There was not, uh, it said free person, and it never included, you know, with, uh, uh, um, especially when it talked about a well-regulated militia, the wording and the adding of uh, only white men can join the militia was added in by the Southern judges and by a lot of uh, su uh, Southern lawyers that wanted to add in. So they put in courts and they, you know, they packed courts and they put in provisions and they passed legislation enabling them to add wording into the uh, United States Constitution. And it was all done illegally. You have to understand that Northern states, they were telling them, yeah, you guys cannot change or add stuff into the Constitution without going through and adding in all states of America's at that time. And the southern states were not doing that. They were just passing laws, changing the, uh, changing the Constitution at will. And you can see that with the infamous Dred Scott versus Sanford case. Uh, Sanford case. And to give you guys a little uh, history on Roger B. Tanny, I want to I want to include this, guys, because this is very very um, significant. Roger B. Tanny, and almost every single one of the Supreme Court judges were in some form of a secret society, or they were uh, you know they're um, a Democrat that believed in um, that believed in uh, true racism, not prejudice. You have to realize that these men, these guys weren't prejudiced. They were racist. They were honest. They were not prejudiced. They were the definition of racist. Like if they see a black person walking with, you know, down the street without, you know what I mean, a white man next to them, they will go and arrest them, beat them, kill them right in front of everyone and no one is going to say anything. That's, that's the true definition of racism. Not this fake generic form of racism that we see nowadays where... All the white people are just looking for reason to be social justice warriors. Oh, you say something racist? I just said I like my freaking cheeseburger with no cheese. And I like it burnt to black. I, I I don't know, you know what I mean? But like, they're just looking for a reason to be a social justice warrior. You know what I mean? Which is just a fake form of a. Uh, it's just uh, people being ignorant and being prejudiced. You know what I mean? But these these people were true racist. Now Roger B. Tanny was one of the first on the Supreme Court from the Roman Catholic Church to hold office, ladies and gentlemen. And he himself was a high member of Opus Deu at that time. And this is kind of where this is kind of where you kind of see the start of the CIA incorporating themselves within the Catholic Church was kind of with um, was kind of like this is kind of where we saw a glimpse of it I'm not going to say this is where it all started but this is kind of where we caught a glimpse of it and the CIA was nowhere nowhere near uh, started at that time of um, uh, Dredd versus Scott I'm I'm simply saying this is where we kind of see the the correlation between what would become the CIA and the Roman Catholic Church was from uh, one of the first Supreme Court judges to ever hold office and he was, and he was part of the Opus Deo and part of the Roman Catholic Church, while at the same time of holding office, which is complete, uh, you know, which is completely illegal. But that's how the Southern Southern Democrats work. That's how the Democrats, even even in the North, work. 
That's why we. That's why in the north you'd always hear stories of of um, of Confederate spies being caught in the north because we are often catching these freaking these freaking guys like you know beating beating you know beating uh you know the. You know, the little black boy at their stall or something like that. We'd often catch them, you know, doing atrocity things. And then, you know, we, you know, they'd do a search of their house. And then lo and behold, oh, crap. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're a, you're one of those taps. Now, I want to get to one more, ladies and gentlemen. And we're going to go to a quick break after that. But I want to get to one more, guys. Because, like I said, we have a lot of information to get to. We have some stories to get to. We have some clips. I'm going to get to a story, and then I want to get, um, uh, and then I'll, and then we'll get to a couple more um, articles of decree that were put in by the Democrats to enslave the poor communities and the colored communities. And this is where gun control comes from, ladies and gentlemen. We're breaking all of this, ladies and uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're breaking all this down for you guys, for all my listeners. If you're a youth and you're wondering where gun control comes from, or how it got its start, then come to Subliminal Message Studios. Listen to this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to this podcast. This is very, very important. And all everything that I'm saying, you can go, you can go find out for yourself. You can go, go on Google, type it. Let me go on. You type it all in. You know what I'm saying? Try to fact check me, and you're gonna find out that nothing I am saying is true. And I'm gonna go all the way up to about. 1995, ladies and gentlemen. So don't think I'm just going to stick with the Democrats from the Civil War or the 1600, 1700er. I'm going to show you guys the correlations of the Democrats back then and how they became the Democrats now. It's it's uh like I said, if we are going to ignore history, then we will be doomed to repeat it, guys. So let's go to that quick break, guys, and then we will be right back. Welcome back to Subliminal Message Studios. My name is Benjamin Leonardo Jacobs, and we were going over the real history of gun control in America, and we're also going over a few other things with the Highland Park shooting, a few other th- a few things that the media is already lying about. They're not informing that witnesses have been plenty of witnesses that have made statements or at least um or i guess yeah made statements that they've they saw another shooter on a rooftop and he was taking aim at the people at the parade at highland park too and the the man that was on the ground um the man that they're running with they're saying that this uh he was lgbt transgender he he cross-dressed like a woman to show up at the parade and then he had bombs there and he set off the bombs and um you know and, and started shooting everybody um now over six people are dead, uh, dozens wounded, and um, this is which is why I'm bringing you this special broadcast um, 
all this history I have on uh, gun control. And we were just going over the famous uh, Dredd versus uh, Sanford uh, case uh, back in 1857. And um, I made sure to get all this printed off, by the way. I made sure to get, uh, get all this printed off. And um, I wanted to make sure that I got all of these dates absolutely correct. And um, I want to get, and also want to get to. I, I'm going to get to a couple other things. Uh, and uh, one in 1860, uh, that's in uh, Georgia. But I'll, I, I want to get to this um, letter that was written. And it was during the Civil War, and it's a letter written by um, a f soldier that was uh, fighting the Southerners. And this is a letter he wrote to his wife. It reads like this. This is July the 14th, 1861. The letter, the letter uh, reads like this. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. At least I should not be able to write you again. I feel impelled to write you lines that may fall under your eyes when I shall be no more. Our movement may be one of a few days duration and full of pleasure, and it may be one of severe conflict and death to me. Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for my country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in. The cause in which I am engaged and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumphant of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering at the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt but my dear wife when I know that my own joys I lay down nearly all of yours and replace them in this life with cares and sorrows when after having eaten for long years the bitter fruit of orphanage myself I must offer as their only sustenance to my dear little children it is weak or dishonorable while the banner of my purpose floats calmly and proudly in the breeze, that my unbounded love for you, my darling wife and children, should struggle and fierce through useless contests with my love of country. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but impotence could break. And yet my love of country comes for me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most grateful to the God and to you that I have enjoyed them so long. And it is hard for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes for future years. When God's willing, we might still have lived a long life and seen our sons grow up to be honorable manhood around us. I have, I know, 
but a few and small claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps it is the wafted prayer for my little Edgar, that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. When my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless and foolish I have often been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness and struggle with all of the misfortune of this world. To shield you and my children from harm, but I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little freight and wait with sad patience till we meet part no more. But oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and float unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the brightest day and in the darkest night. Amidst your happiness scenes and your gloomiest hours, always, always. And if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. Or if the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. As for my little boys, they will grow as I have done and never know a father's love and care. Little Willie is too young to remember me long and my blue-eyed Edgar will keep my frelics with him among the dimmest memories of his childhood. Sarah, I have unlimited confidence in your maternal care and your development of their characteristics Tell my two mothers is his and hers I call God's blessing upon them. Oh, Sarah, I wait for you there. Come to me and lead thither my children. Soldier Sullivan. What and honestly great um poet ladies and gentlemen and um these are the type of men that fought and died for the right for the poor no matter your color or creed to keep and bear arms and look what we have come to now Backbiter, tell me God's gone, God's gone, tell me God's gone. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, getting back into it, in um, 1860 was uh, the Acts uh, forbid sales of delivery of firearms to slaves. And then, of course, in 1861, because of the no-name, uh, no-name, no, I'm sorry, because of the know-nothing and the Northern Riflemen and all of the true patriots of America that did not side with the eugenic rhinos in the deep north of America that settled down, that practiced eugenics. Um, uh, no, these were men that actually believed in the free spirit, free spirit of the human soul, and every man is created under the their endowed creator. And on 1861, the Civil War did indeed kick off. Now, in 1861. Uh, there on uh, December seventeenth, uh, eighteen sixty-one, um, uh, in Florida, uh, this uh, law provided once again that white citizens patrol might search the homes of blacks, both free and slave, and uh, confiscate arms held therein in an effort to dismantle the black family. And they also, and a lot of people don't know this. It's not like they was just subjugated strictly to the black uh, black family at that time. They went heavily after the Indian family and completely just genociding them because they could not break their souls. So I, I just want to say that you know everyone, everyone gets caught on uh, thinking that you know the, the black. I'm not saying the blacks didn't have it bad. I'm certainly not saying that. But everyone just gets you know caught up on the point. The gaslighting. Um, it's because they don't know real history. But the gaslighting of it and. You know, once they really get into it, they come to find out, holy crap, they completely genocided the Native American population. Maybe we should focus just a little more about supposedly equity, Joe Biden, on uh, them. But um, uh, so Florida put in this uh, uh, act uh, due due directly because of the Northern Riflemen, uh, by the way, directly because of them. They were infiltrating deep within their lines and actually freeing a lot of the slaves and this is right around the time where um, you know you see uh, other things come up uh, you know other um, other um, groups form up where they're uh, freeing slaves out of the so uh, southern states you know like um, you know uh, the uh, underground railroad and stuff like that you know what I mean but this is where all these uh, groups really, really started to take a hold. You know, um, the Underground Railroad was just something that got famous. There are many other um, uh, groups that are well, well more famous than that. It's just, um, you know, they, they choose to make the most uh, progressively uh, racist, uh, which uh, I don't know if you know that, but um, yeah, she, she, she was. Uh, she, uh, she, she herself uh, believed in um, some form of black eugenics. Um, that's because of uh, who, who her uh, teacher was um, after after it was all said and done. But um, in 1863, now there is the Emancipation of Proclamation where President Lincoln issued a proclamation that free that was freeing all slaves in areas still in rebellion. Now um. I also want to include uh, include this. So, President Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't something that was like you know what I mean, like starstruck. Like it wasn't like how am I going to say this? It wasn't something that the northern states and the southern states did not already see coming. There are already uh, different senators, uh, northern uh, northern Republicans, uh, that weren't rhinos that were pushing this types of ideas and the. 
you uh, and the and the the northern the deep northern uh, Republicans that were practicing you know uh, eugenics, which is a uh, basically a, another form of racism. Uh, um, actually, it's more of a devilish, devil form of racism. But um, they, the northern Republicans, they believe very heavily in segregation, and, uh, which is why you know, like I said, guys, I, listen. Subliminal Message Studios is not about re- uh, right or left. We are about we are truth tellers. We are seekers of history, and we always, always remember it, so we can, so we are never doomed to repeat our past. And I'll, I want to get to another story. Uh, real quick, if I may, and this is of um, Henry Thomas Jefferson. He was a spy uh, for the uh, Confederate, um, ladies and gentlemen. So the story goes like this: Captain Peril Atroy stood at the advanced post of his picketed guard, talking in low tones with the sentinel. This post was on a turnpike, which bisected the captain's camp a half mile in rear through the camp was not in sight from at that point the officer apparently was giving the soldiers certain instructions was perhaps merely inquiring if all were quiet in the front as the two stood talking um, uh, talking to a man approached them from the direction of the camp carelessly whistling and was promptly halted by the soldier he was evidently a civilian a tall person coarsely clad in the home Mud stuff of yellow-gray called butternut, which was men's only wear in the later days of the Confederacy. On his head was a slouch felt hat, once white from beneath, which hung masses of uneven hair. Seemingly inadequate with either scissors or comb, the man's face was rather striking, a broad forehead, high nose, and thin cheeks, the mouth invisible, and the far dark beard, which deemed as neglected in the hair. The eyes were large, and the head and the steadiness and fixture of attention was so frequently marked in considering intelligence, and will not easily turn from its purpose. So those, so uh, so say those who uh, pagoramists who have that kind of eyes on the on this whole. This was a man of whom would likely to observe and be observed by. He carried a walking stick freshly cut from forest, and his Allen cowskin boots were white with the dust. Now, uh, show your paws, said the federal soldier, a trifle more imperiously, perhaps, than he would have thought necessary if he had not been under the eye of his commander, who, with folded arms, looked on from the roadside. Lude, you reelect me, General, said the wayfarer tranquilly. While producing the paper from the pocket of his coat, there was something in his tone, perhaps a faint suggestion of irony, which made his evaluation of his obstructor to exalted rank less agreeable to that worthy warrior than promotion is commonly found to be. You all have to be pretty particular, I reckon, he added, in a one considerably tone, as if in a half apology for being halted. Having read the pass with his rifle resting on the ground, the soldier handed the document back with the word, shouldering his weapon, and returned to his command. The civilian passed on in the middle of the road, and when he had penetrated the circumjacent confederacy a few yards resuming his whistling and was out of sight beyond an angle in the road which that pointed a thin force suddenly the officer undid his arms with his breast drew a revolver from his belt and sprang forward at at a run in the same in, in the same direction leaving his sitting on gaping astonishment at his post after making to the various visible forms of a natural solemn promise to, to be damned that gentleman resumed 
that air solidarity, which is supposed to be appropriate to a taste of alert military attention. Captain Holtrick held in the independent command. His force consisted of a company of infantry, a squadron of cavalry, and a section of artillery detached from the army to which they belonged to defend an important defend in the Cumberland Mountains in Tennessee. It was a field officer's command held by line officers promoted from the ranks where he had quietly served until discovered. Now his post was one of exceptional pearl and its defense entailed a heavy responsibility and he had wisely been given corresponding discretionary powers. All the more powers because of his dis distance from the main army, the precautious nature of his communication and the lawless character of the enemy's irregular troops infesting the region, he had strongly fortified his little camps, which embraced a village of half-dozen dwellings and a country store. He had collected a considerable quantity of supplies. To a few resident civilians of known loyalty with whom he had desirable to, to trade, and those who serviced in various ways, he sometimes availed himself. He had given written pauses, admitting them within his lines. It is easy to understand that an abuse of privilege in the interest of the enemy might entail serious consequences. Captain Hortray made an effort to the effect that anyone so abusing it would be summarily shot. With the Sentinel had been examined, the civilians passed the captain and eyed the letter narrowly. He thought his appearance familiar and had at first no doubt of giving him the pass which had satisfied the Sentinel. It was not until the man had got out of the sight and hearing his identity and discovered and disclosed by revealing a light from memory with soldier promptness of decision the officer had acted in this revelation. To any but singularly self-proposed man, the operation of an officer of the military forces formidably clad, bearing in one hand and sheathed sword in the other, a cocked revolver, and rushing in furious pursuit is no doubt disquietly to a high degree. Upon the man to enter, uh, to whom the pursuit was in the instance directed, it appeared to have no other effect than somewhat to intensify his tranquility. He might easily enough have escaped into the forest to the right or to the left, but chose another course of action, turned and quietly faced the captain, saying, He came up, I reckon you must have something to say to me, which ye disremembered. What might it be, neighbor? But the neighbor did not answer, being engaged in the unneighborly act of covering him with a cocked pistol. Surrender, said the captain, uh, as calmly as a slight breathlessness from exertion would permit, or you die. There was no menace in the manner of his demand. There in all matter and in the means of enforcing it, there was too something that not altogether reassuring in the cold gray head, eyes that glanced along the barrel of the weapon. For a moment, the two men stood looking at each other in silence. The civilian with no appearance of fear, with a great apparent unconcern as when complying with the less austeritable demand of the sentinel, slowly pulled from his pocket the paper which had satisfied the humble functionary uh, and held it with saying, I reckon this air pass from Mr. Hetcher is, this pass is a forgery, the officer said, interrupting. I am Captain Hortry, and you are Dramer Broom. It would have required a sharp eye to observe the slight pallor of the civilian's face at these words, and the only other manifestation attesting their significance as a voluntary relaxation of the thumb and fingers holding the dishonored paper, which, fell, uh, which falling to the road unheeded, was rolled by a gentle wind and then lay still, with a coating of, uh, with coating, with a coating of dust as in humiliation for the lies that it bore. A moment Later, the civilian, still looking unmoved into the barrel of the pistol, said, Yes, I am Dramer Broom, a Confederate spy, and your prisoner. I have on my own person, as you will soon discover, a plan 
of your fort and its armament, a statement of the distribution of your men and their number, a map of the approaches, showing the positions of all your outposts. My life is fairly yours, but if you wish is to take it more form away than be your own hand, if you are willing to spare me the dignity of marching into the camp at the muzzle of your pistol, I promise you that I will neither resist, escape, nor remonstrate, but will submit to whatever penalty may be imposed. The officer lowered his pistol, uncocked it, and thrust it into his place in his belt. Brune advanced a step, extended his right hand. It is in that hand of a traitor and a spy, said the officer coldly, and did not make it. The other bowed. Come, say, come, said the captain. Let us go to the camp. You shall not die until tomorrow morning. He turned his back upon his prisoner, and these two ignited men retraced their steps and soon passed the sentinel. The so who expressed his general sense of things by a needless and exaggerated salute to his commander. Now, early on the morning after these events, two men, captor captive and captive, sat in the tent of the former. A table, was a table was between them on which lay, among a number of letters, official and private, which the captain had written during the night. The incriminating papers found upon the spy, that gentleman had slept through the night in an adjoining tent, unguarded, both having, brec having breakfast, were now smoking. Mr. Bruno, said Captain Hertray, you probably do not understand why I recognize you in your disguise, nor was I unaware any of your name. I have not sought to learn, Captain, the prisoner said, was quietly. Nevertheless, I should like to know, if the story was not a fin, you will perceive that my knowledge of you goes back to the autumn of 1861. At the time, you were a private in Ohio Regiment, a brave and trusted soldier to the surprise and the grief of your officers and comrades you deserted and went over to the enemy. Soon after, you were captured by... Uh, in a skirmish, recognized, uh, tried by court-martial and sentenced to be shot. Awaiting the execution of the sentence, you were confined, unfettered, in a freight car standing on a side track of a railway at Grafton, Virginia, said Brune, pushing the ashes from his cigar with a little finger of the hand holding it, and without looking up, up at Grafton, Virginia, the captain repeated, one dark and stormy night, a soldier who had just returned from a long, fatiguing march was put on guard over you. He sat in a cracker box inside the car near the door, his rifle loaded and the bayonet fixed. You sat in a corner and his orders were to kill you if you attempted to rise. But if I asked to rise, he might call the corporal of the guard. Yes, as long as the silent hours were away, the soldiers yielded to the demands of nature. He himself occurred the death penalty by sleeping at his post of duty. You did? What? You recognize me? You have known me a long time. The captain had risen and was walking the floor of his tent, visibly excited. His face was flushed. The gray eyes had lost the cold, pullish look which they had shown when Brune seen them over the pistol barrel. They had softened wonderfully. I knew you said the spy with his customary tranquility. The moment you faced me, demanding my surrender in the circumstances, it would have been hardly becoming in me to recall these matters. I am perhaps a traitor, certainly a spy, but I had not wished to seem a supplement. The captain held pause in his walk and was facing his prisoner. There was a singular huskiness in his voice as he spoke again. Mr. Brune, whatever your conscience may permit you to be, you saved my life at what you must have believed the cost of your own. And so I saw you yesterday when halted by my sentinel. I believed you dead, thought that you had suffered me the fate which, through my own crime, might easily have escaped. 
You had only to step from the car and leave me to take your place before the firing squad. You had a divine compassion. You pitted my fatigue. You let me sleep, watched over me as the time drew near for the relief guard to come and detect me in my crime. You gently waked me. Ah, Brune, Brune. That was well done. That was great, that. The captain's voice failed him. The tears were running down his face and smoking upon his beard and his chest. Resuming his seat at the table, he buried his face in his arms and sobbed. All else was silent. Suddenly, suddenly, the clear wobble of a budgie was heard sounding the assembly. The captain started and raised his wet face from his arms. It had turned ghastly pale outside in the sunlight. was heard of the stir of men falling into the line. The voice of the sergeants controlling the roll, the tapping of the drummers as they braced the drums, the captain spoke. I ought to have confessed my fault in order to relate the story of your magnanimity. It might have produced you a pardon. A hundred times I resolved to do so, but shame prevented uh, but shame prevented me. Besides, your sentence was just and righteous. Well, haven't forgive me, I said nothing, and my regiment was soon out, afterward ordered to Tennessee, and I never heard about you. It was all right, sir, said Broom, without a visible emotion. I escaped and returned to my colors, the Confederate colors. I should like to add that before deserting from the Federal Service, I had honestly asked a discharge on the ground of altering altered convictions. I was answered by punishment. Ah, but if I had suffered the penalty of my crime, if you had not generously given me that life I accepted without gratitude, you would have never again in the shadow and an immense of death. The prisoner started slacking and took anxiety came into his face. Once would have said, too, that he was surprised at that moment of lieutenant that Jason appeared at the opening of the tent and saluted. Captain, he said, the battalion is formed. Captain Hatrara had recovered his composure. He turned to the officer and said, Lieutenant, go to the Captain Graham and, said, and say that I direct him to assume command of this battalion and parade it outside the prayer. This gentleman is a deserter and a spy. He is to be shot to death in the presence of troops. He will accompany you unbound and unguarded. While the adjutant awaited at the, at the door, the two men inside the tent rose and exchanged ceremony bows. Brune immediately retiring. Half an hour later, an old black cook, the only person left in camp except the commander, was so startled by the sound of a volley of musketeer that he dropped the kettle that he was lifting from a fire. Before his consternation and the hissing which the consents of kettle made among the uh, embers, he might also have heard Netter near at a hand the single pistol shot which Captain Hatray reannounced to life, which in consciousness he could no longer keep. In compliance with the terms of the note that he left for the officer, he succeeded him in command. He was buried like the deserter and the spy, without military honors, and in the solemn shadow of the mountain, which knows no more war, the two sleep in long-forgotten graves. Looking in the dark against your fellow man, but 
cigarette sky Made black and white What's down in the dark Will be brought to the light You can run on for a long time So, while the Civil War is going on, um, uh, in southern states, there's still um, different um, black codes being introduced. Uh, just one of them, uh, in 1865, the Mississippi Statue of 1865 prohibited blacks, not in the military and not licensed so to do by the Board of Police at his or her county, from keeping or carrying firearms of any kind or in any ammunition, dirk or bowie knife. Now, same goes with eight in 1865 in uh, Louisiana, where they uh, prohibited blacks, not uh, prohibited um, colored, um, uh, colored blacks, Indians, whatever you want to say. They include all different races in here, um, excluding the German whites. Uh, not in the military service from carrying firearms of any kind of weapons without the special permission of his employer's approval and endorsed by the nearest and most convenient chief of paroles, ladies and gentlemen. So you can literally see the correlations and in, in all these in all these states all have if they're not a democratic uh democratic believe in a you know a chief of justice or senator or governor then it is someone that is part of a secret society that practices uh cultism practices you know uh, devil worship you know these groups like you know everyone thinks like you know like right here in Nebraska we have the offshoot of the Skull and Bone Society, and they they call themselves the Innocent Society. If you go on their webpage, they literally have a, a devil a devil face on there with horns, and uh, they got uh, two uh, two Pacific arrows across them with uh, uh, two tridents. I'll say that two tridents uh, uh, cross from one another. But um, you know, it's it's all the same thing. It's all cultism, and in these in these types of societies, um, maybe not specifically that one, but I mean, I guess at the same time, these types of societies have um, been operating underneath the shadows and um, infiltrating our uh, private justices for a very very long time, uh, confusing the masses. And what's going on, you know what I mean? And, and distorting uh, America's history in the meantime and literally leaving back all the all the great things that we actually did. That's why most people have no idea that this is the way gun control actually is first introduced. So let's uh, but let's keep on going. So um, in 1865, um, uh, that's when the Civil War ended. Um, now, um, slavery was abolished. Um, uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whatever the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their ju uh, jurisdiction. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. You know, one thing, and and it goes, but but the, the but but this is also when um you know uh, the southern states and the democratic states and even some of the you know the. Northern states, um, northern Republican states, um, started to push laws through uh, with uh, black codes. Uh, but you also have to remember that's because a lot of these in the in the deep north with a lot of these Republicans, they weren't really Republicans; they were eugenic pushers. You know, um, they believed in eugenics. They believed in um, you know uh, segregating uh, one race, you know, and making sure that it doesn't grow and keeping one race because they believe that this race is superior 
then uh, the, the next race. You know, I'm trying to keep it as simple as I can. I guess I can go into more, but I, I don't really have the time. But anyways, um, so um, and now and, um, after the Civil War um, ended, and that was May 26, 1865, um, Alabama, uh, they put in, they started putting in the black codes. Now, this was uh, done in January of 1866. Uh, this prohibited blacks to own or carry firearms or other deadly weapons and prohibited any person to sell, give, or lend firearms or ammunition of any description, whatever, to any black person or colored person of that nature, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, right off bat, guys, uh, you know, it's just to say, just to say, you know, gun control is not racist. I'm telling you right now that gun control was rooted in racism. Not only was it rooted in racism, it was more or less rooted into gun control was was mainly rooted in the control of the poor people, control of the the workers that drive the country. You know what I mean? And only the elites at the top. They get this idea that they're in control of, you know what I mean, the rest of this masses. Even the even the the people that did not uh, study, um, you know, eugenics, they they um, found themselves in the belief that they are better than people. It's all part. It's it's part of that group mentality. You know what I mean? Once you think you're part of this group, suddenly you start to want to act like you are part of that group. And if that group is practicing pedophilia and you know, and um, uh, subjugate, uh, subjugating, you know, um, the race next to them, you know, well, then you're going to start doing the same thing, but you're going to distort your mind and you're going to make yourself believe, well, I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? Uh, you're, or, 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 if, or if you say you're not doing that, you're going to make yourself believe, well, I'm doing it for the better of society and for the best for society. I'm helping you out. That's, that's, it's the same rhetoric that the Democrats have today. And this is exactly why, as we've been going over this, guys, you can see a lot of the tactics that were used back then. They use some of the same tactics now, only they shade it and they jade it into making it look like the Republicans are the main, are, are, are the racist ones. And that's just not simply true. The Democratic Party had been nothing but a cancer ever since their inception, and we have simply not been able to do away with them. Well, I want to get to one more. Um, uh, it's it's a poem, and I want to get to this. This is by William Scott. He was the Third Vermont Infantry. Now he was convicted uh, for sleeping on duty in 1860. He's a sleeping sentinel. Twas in the sultry summertime, as war reds red record show, when Patriot armies rose to meet a fragile foe, when from the north and east and west, like the upheaving sea, swept forth Columbia's sun to make our country truly free. Within a prison's dismal walls, where shadows veal decay, in fetters on a heap of straw, a youthful soldier lay, heartbroken, hopeless, and forlorn, with short and feverish breath. He waited but the appointed hour to die in a culprit's death. Yet but few, for a few brief weeks, untroubled with the care, he roamed at will and freely drew his native mountain air, where sparkling streams leap moosey rocks from many a woodland fraught, and whipping elms and grassy slopes give beauty to Vermont, where dwelling in 
and humbling cot, a tiller of the soil, encircling by a mother's love, he shared a father's toil. Till born upon the wailing winds, he suffering country's cry, fired his young heart with fervent seal for her to live or die. Then left he all a few found tears by firmness half concealed, a blessing and a party prayer, and he was in the field, the field of strife, whose dews are blood, whose breezes wars not hot breath, whose fruits whose fruits are garnered in the grave, whose husband man is death. Without a memory he endured a service new and hard, but wearied with a toilsome march, it chanced one night on guard. He sank exhausted at his post, and the gray morning found he prostrate form a sense asleep upon the ground. So in the silence of the night, a weary on the sod sank the disciplines watching near the suffering son of God. Yet Jesus with compassion moved beheld their heavy eyes. And though betrayed to ruthless foes for giving bad them rise, but God is love and infant minds can faintly comprehend how gently mercy and his rule may with stern justice blend. And this poor soldier seized and bound and found none to justify, justify, while wars and exorable law decreed that he must die. T'was night in a secluded room with measured dread and slow. Statesmen of commanding mean paced grievously to and fro, Upstressed he pondered on a land by civil discord rent, on brothers armed and deadly strife. It was the president, the whose of thirty million filled his burdened heart with grief, and battling hosts on land and sea acknowledged him their chief. And yet amid the din of war, he heard the plaintive cry on that poor soldier as he lay in prison, doomed to die. Twas morning on a tented field, and through the heated haze. Flashback from lines of burnished arms, the sun's afflicted graze and blaze. While from a sunburier prison house, seen slowly to emerge, a sad procession o'er the sword moved to a muffled dirge. And in the mist, while faltering step and pale and, and anxious face, in menaces between two guards, a soldier had his place, a youth laid out to die and yet it was not death but shame the smoke his gallant heart with dread and shook his manly frame still on before the marshaled ranks the train pursued its way up to the designated spot where on a coffin lay his coffin and i with reeling brain despairing desolate he took his station by its side abandoned to its fate then came across his wavering sight, strange pictures in the air. He saw his distant mountain home. He saw his parents there. He saw them bowed with hopeless grief through fast declining years. He saw a nameless grave, and then the vision closed in tears. Yet once again, and double filed advancing, then he saw twelve comrades sternly set apart to execute the law. But saw no more, he senses sworn, deep darkness settled around. And shuddered, he waited now the fatal volley sound. Then suddenly was heard the noise of steeds, and wheels approach, and rolls through a cloud of dust appeared a stately coach. 
on past the guards, although the field its rapid course was bent, till halting mid the lines was seen the nation's president. He came to save that stricken soul, now waking from despair, and from a thousand voices rose a shout which rent the air. The pardoned soldier understood the tones of jubilee and bounded from his fetters, blessed the hand that made him free. To a spring within a verdant veil, where Warwick's crystal tide reflected, oh, its peaceful breast, fair fields on either side. With birds and flowers combined to cheer in Sullivan's solitude, two threatened armies face to face in fear, defiance stood. Two threatening armies, one revoked by injured liberty, which bore above its patriot ranks the symbol of the free. And one, a rebel horde beneath a flaunted flag of bars, a fragment torn by treacherous hands from freedom's stripes and stars. A sudden burst of smoke and flame from many thundering gun proclaimed along the echoing hills the conflict had begun. While shot and shell athwart the stream which friendish fury sped to strew among the living lines, the dying and the dead, then louder than the roaring storm, pealed forth the stern commander. Charge, soldiers! Charge! And at the word with shouts of fearless hand, the two hundred heroes from Vermont rushed onward through the flood, and onward o'er the rising ground they marked their way in blood. The smitten foe before them fled in terror from his post, while unsustained two hundred stood to battle with the host. They turned, and turning as the rally ranks with the murder, Ausfire replied, They bore the fallen o'er the field, or through the purple tide, the fallen and the first who fell in the unequal stride. He was whom mercy sped to save when justice claimed his life. The pardoned soldier, while yet the conflict raged around, while yet his life blooded, abetted away through every gaping wound, while yet his voice grew tremendously in death, bedimmed his eyes, he called his comrades to attest he had not feared to die. And in his last aspiring breath, a prayer to heaven was sent that God, with his unfallen grace, would bless our president. Such a miraculous story, ladies and gentlemen, and, you know, so inspirational. And it really, really shows just the importance and where America really, really, truly gets its grit from. You know, and it's these stories, it's these, um, it's these atrocities that have been committed and they've been covered up by the Democrats because they want to push an agenda, especially nowadays what they're doing is they're pushing the agenda of ultimate racism, ultimate push, the ultimate push for eugenics, the trash and trach, you know, the, tra- the track and trace um, through, um, you know, through their mRNA technology, you know, and uh, the depopulation program set on the Georgia Guidestones to kill almost 90% of us. But the general population does not know about uh, this history, and, and, and it's real. It's not conspiracy theory. You know, it uh, amazes me whenever I, I still get called a conspiracy theorist whenever I talk about these certain things. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's truly something spectacle, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, let me get back on point, though, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so, in 1867, uh, 
there was a special report of the anti-slavery conference, um, and this was held in Paris. See, it was great men like Reverend Dr. Massey that admitted a paper to the Bureau uh, in the continents of America involving special interests um, because he knew about uh, racial groups or even um, uh, secret societies like the Illuminati that were headstrong in uh, infiltrating the United States all up until the point where they wanted to make the America kind of like what the Third Reich became in the early 1928 only they were unsuccessful thanks to the what the british called them was the radical republicans um it's funny it's funny i actually bring that up because that's actually one of the things that um, i identify as um but so the special uh, the, the special report noted with particular emphasis that under the black codes uh, and we were just discussing those um the black codes that were introduced in um Alabama and uh, Tennessee and Missouri and Louisiana and Georgia and Florida. Uh, well, they they admitted uh, during during this session of having having of them having this report. Um, this is one of the things that uh, reported noted with particular emphasis that under the Black Codes, blacks were forbidden to own or bear firearms, and this were rendered defenseless against assaults. And so this is this was right around the time when um, they started to get together, because you have to realize that this was really really all about the radical Republicans trying to push for um, slaves their rights to have guns, their rights to vote, their rights to be a part of the system. You know what I mean? And this isn't um, you know like a, a refugee thing. You know what I'm saying? Like we have going on today. You know, speaking, of, I have some breaking uh, news uh, coming up here uh, later on down the line later on tonight involving the complete destruction the invasion that's going on at the texas border ladies and gentlemen but for right now i want to stay focused and get on this so like i said if, if it wasn't for uh, reverend dr messi that was admitting papers uh, to the bureau and the continents at that time and he was warning them of special interests of secret societies that have infiltrated our united states uh, military and uh, Commerce, economic, uh, economics, I should say. One of the first things that was actually um, infiltrated was indeed our school educational system. That was done by men like uh, John Dewey and Marxist uh, believers, uh, those types, you know what I'm saying? The first thing they wanted to do is change the educational system away from intellect and intelligence, and they wanted to produce a democratic socialist system into our educational system, which basically is a form of dog training. And that's why. Um, that's why so our educational systems soon after that fell immensely and uh, but to stay on point guys because I do want to get to this um, try to get to this as much as I can plus we're about ready to go on break now in uh, 1960 or 18, 1868 um, was the year that the 14th amendment to the United States Constitution was um, this is so this is where this is where the lines get a little blurry. So the original 14th Amendment technically um, was already written up. It was written up in 1804, um, placed inadvertently placed by a slave by a slave at the time to push through. And rumors are that this person that wrote the actual adoption up of the 14th Amendment before it was even thought up was 
family members with George Washington's um, right-hand man, which indeed was um, George Washington. I mean, he was a slave of George Washington, but apparently they never... They did not, you know, act as if accordingly. Reports were that they acted as, you know, two peas in a pod. Now, um, get moving on to uh, 1870 in Tennessee. This is when we first get the. This is when we first get uh, get into the, um, you know, Saturday Night Special kind of bands where um, the government, uh, the Southern Democrats, uh, started to in- introduce overtaxation on. Um, low, low, cheap end firearms so they could price the young, the poor out of protecting themselves. And the only guns that would be left on the shelves is very, very, very expensive guns. Guns that the poorer uh, community could not afford. So this is the way this, uh, like, like I said, this is 1870 in Tennessee. Tell me if this sounds familiar. An act to preserve the peace and prevent homicide, which banned the sale of all handguns except the expensive Army and Navy models, right? So the cheap revolvers of the late 19th and early 20th century were referred to as suicide specials. The Saturday Night Special label not becoming widespread until the reformers and politicians took up the gun control calls during the 1960s. And we have a couple clips on that. One of these clips, actually, I'm going to get to is a back in, like I said, was... Um, I want to make sure I get the date correct. Anderson Cooper. Or I could just start playing right there. Um, that was this is this clip I'm about ready to show you is back in 2010. And um, but it was back in the early 1960s, um, specifically, I think it was 1971, where the ATF director um, was at a press conference and he openly admitted what the ATF plan was. Their ATF plan was to literally brainwash the public into believing that all guns are horrible. And um, yes, he was uh, inadvertently, he was a black man trying to exterminate and depoverish and depopulate his own people. It happens all the time. But um, I, I, I do believe we are able to find that clip. I know uh, back in our first hour, it's a little hard to find because they often wipe uh, you know, clips like that off the internet. You know, they'll take them completely off because they're so in your face. You know, there's so much in your face. But um, moving forward, ladies and gentlemen, so um, there's uh, uh, 1879 in Tennessee. There is another uh, type of Saturday Night Special economic uh, ban. This uh, revamped uh, nine years uh, revamped nine years later, passing an act to prevent the sale of pistols, which was upheld in State versus Burgoyne. Um, that was uh, 75 Tennessee, 173, 174, 1881. Um, now we're gonna move on uh, to some more guys. Like I said, we're getting ready to go on break. And then I also want to get, of course, to the um, Washington Post article from 1934. And, and also remember, that was the same year where you had um, mafia types and stuff like that and the police, um, before the police got militarized, uh, soon after that is when the police started to get um, training from the federal government. That's where J. Edgar Hoover came up with the Department of Defense and uh, these other these other completely illegal institutions that were just built and 
assumed law and authority. They were never voted in by Congress or anything like that. But um, there's a, in 1893 in Alabama, this was the, um, uh, an economic ban pass. Um, Alabama placed extremely heavy businesses or transactional taxes on the sale of handguns in an attempt to put handguns out of the reach of uh, poor whites and poor blacks. So um, this, like I said, this is where uh, you started to get these bans on those. I don't know if any of my listeners are very, very young. You probably don't know what I mean by Saturday Saturday Night Special. Well, it was a little, little, um, basically to put it to you, it was a little revolver. And it had a cylinder that had six rounds in it. And it was, it was very, very small, but very, very effective. And um, they're famously made in uh, movies and uh, famously made up of uh, gang members using in them and stuff like that. And uh, the actual database and actual statistics shows that a lot of gang members back then weren't even using those Saturday Night Specials. They were using, uh, you know, Uzis and twisting their hands and stuff like that. But you see, the Democrats in America still took it upon themselves to continue the slave trade soon after. Like I said, the Democrats have been a cancer for a very, very long time. So in um, eight, uh, sorry, in uh, 1902 in South Carolina, there was a first total civilian handgun ban. The state banned all pistol sales except the sheriffs and their special deputies. And um, inadvertently, like I was mentioning before, a lot of these uh, special deputies were involved in, um, you know, uh, secret societies like the Illuminati, like the White League that was uh, becoming more frank, thanks to Aaron Burr and the KKK, the original founder of the, um, Aaron Burr, the original founder of the KKK as well. So, even after the Civil War, there was still a lot of secret, and, and this is why I try to focus on secret society so much, because these guys are the ones that are in play um, and they act accordingly. They're on both sides of the spectrum. They're on the left side. They're on the right side. They're on uh, your resource. They're you're, they're on their your natural resource board committees. They're on your educational board, uh, you know, committees and stuff like that. And they elect themselves, like right here in the state of Nebraska. Just a quick little uh, prelude, right here, if I can. Um, we have politicians that sit here and talk about how much money they're spending to schools every year, but they won't tell the Nebraska people that. The people on the board of our educational board systems, they're voted in through private vote. Uh, and that matters a lot more than, you know, some dumb politicians talking about what they can do or where they can spend money. Because it doesn't matter if the same people that are in control, of, you know, after they, press the, after they push the law through, the same people are in control of the money that they've been wasting this entire time. But, you know, just, uh, just you know, uh, I, I guess just a little side note, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, let's go on a quick little uh, break, guys. And then we're going to come back and we're going to get into the 1902 uh, in South Carolina, guys. Because, like I said, I have, I made sure to get all these dates uh, corrected. And we're going to go all the way up to, let's see. We're going to go all the way up. I think I went up to 1991 in Maine. And then... After that, uh, after that was the Patriot Act. I saw, I'm sorry, I went all the way up to 1995, guys. I want to make sure while I was doing this uh, research, I, I, 
I've done it plenty of times before. A lot of the times I know the dates myself, but I wanted to make sure when I gathered this information together, I wanted to make sure that I got everything correct. Like I'm not winging, winging anything. I want to make sure that I got all my dates correct. So um, let's go to that quick break, guys, and then I will see you on the other side. I'm very, I'm Hello everyone. My name is Benjamin Leonardo Jacobs, um, aka Leo the Lion. Thank you very much for joining me on this um, brand new segment, on this special segment when we're debunking and um, giving people the real history when it comes to gun control and where gun control actually comes from. But we're specifically um, trying to stay on the history with the with the history with the gun control right here in America, and I believe we went all the way back to uh, 1640, and we were also talking about the Highland Park shooter. Um, absolutely stunning and breaking news on that, guys. It turns out that he was quote unquote high as heck, or high, he was higher than a kite off of psychotropics. Um, he made a he made mentions about how he could not he just wanted to go to sleep and he did not want to do what he was going to do but something was controlling him a lot of uh scary scary things going on there and i advise every single one of you um to go uh listen to my um, one podcast where uh, it's dubbed operation looking glass and i actually go over some pretty pretty scary stuff which sounds exactly like what he was going through if not, get yourself educated about MK Ultra, ladies and gentlemen. But um, to stick on point right here, guys, because we have a lot of things to get to, I also have this um, article from 1934. I also have this clip of this ATF agent admitting to him getting paid $150,000, and that was in 2010, to do absolutely nothing. So in 1902, uh, this is South Carolina. This is the first total civilian handgun ban. State banned all pistol sales exempt sheriffs and their special deputies. And like I said, these special deputies often included uh, secret society members like uh, the White League, um, the Dragon Society, uh, the KKK, uh, which was formed by Aaron Burr uh, so long ago. And, uh, in 1906 in Mississippi, Mississippi enacted the first registration law for retailers in 1906, requiring them to maintain records of all pistols and pistol ammunition sales and to make such records available for inspection on demand. And uh, the judge and the senators actually backed this up. Guess what? They're all Democrats. And they aimed these policies specifically towards poor communities, by the way. It's not like they'd go to the suburbs and, um, you know, focus on these, on those communities at all. Now, in... Um, 1911 in New York, um, police uh, police or Sullivan law enacted. This is requiring police permission via permit issued at their discretion at, uh, at or to own a handgun. This was very unpopular with uh, minorities and poor, and the poor people because it kind of it priced them out even more with the fourth you know with the fourth now on tax stamp on the Saturday night special laws where they were high pricing. Uh, low-end guns, all thanks to a lot of movies during that time, a lot of uh, books that drive the narrative with um, 
you know, the poor the poor person or the black person with a gun, drunk, and he's going to kill someone. So it was a very brainwashing time. This was all going on during these type of legislations. So the people, even the people that believed in equality uh, for all races, even then they were still for the gun control because they were getting gaslit at, at the time and being told that, you know, the, the poor black person, the poor Indian is going to, you know, if we allow him to have a gun, he's going to come to your house and rape you and kill you. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. And after a while, it drives, if, if the race itself is not smart enough to get out of that um, draconian dialect and not able and they're not smart enough to get out of it, oftentimes they become exactly what they're being accused of. Now, um... Like I said, in uh, 1911, this was, um, there are only about 3,000 permits in New York City and 25,000 carry permits. If you're a street corner grocer in Manhattan, that means you could not get a gun permit. Um, now, to move on, guys. And then, uh, of course, in 1934, and I'm going to get to this article right now, finally. In 1934, there was the famous... Gun Control Act of 1934. This was the National Firearms Act passed, which was the abolishment of the Second Amendment, ladies and gentlemen. The first striking abolishment, because this one directly went after everyone's uh, firearms. It did not matter. This is when the military-industrial complex was really, really starting to peak. Uh, and... Uh, this is the headline from Washington Post, and this is the kind of headlines they're telling people all across America. So even the people that believed in equality for all genders, they were completely getting gaslit because that's this is the type of headlines they were seeing in their news. And back then, everyone was reading. Everyone grabbed the newspaper. You see what I'm saying? There was no Twitter, no Facebook. You know, there was no CNN stuff. Well, I mean, no, I shouldn't say that. There was a CNN, but there was no... Uh, uh, easy access to the news. So this is the headline, Washington Post, 1934. There were killers with submachine guns, then the president went after their weapons. Yeah. Right. Franklin Roosevelt, National Firearms Act of 1934. These, uh, now, they claimed this National Firearms Act was put into effect because of uh, notorious um, gangsters like uh, Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde, and they they and Holly and thanks to Hollywood, they completely gaslit everyone in the reality of what was really going on with these characters. Like like I was explaining to you guys uh, in the second hour, um, the reality of Bonnie and Clyde was um, they weren't the mass killers that everyone thought. Now they did kill people. I'm not gonna lie about that, but um, they were part of the Barrel Gang. The Barrel Gang was a very very wild known all around. Uh, their stretch of town and the towns next to them. And after a while, thanks to the media and them building up this star celebrity status, uh, it drove a lot more people to actually to the Barrel Gang. So in all reality, the media more or less just made the Barrel Gang what it was and made Bonnie and Clyde the scapegoats of what was really, really going on, ladies and gentlemen. Now, they also mentioned a pretty boy, uh, another one of the gangsters that... Uh, they mention is a pretty boy Floyd. Um, but let me just read a couple things off to you guys. So Roosevelt's firearm bill also proposed requiring newly purchased pistols and revolvers to be registered and owners to be fingerprinted. In February 1933 in Miami, a would-be assassin had fired a pistol at President-elect Roosevelt that mortally wounded 
visiting Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. The gun control effort foreshadowed the current debate over assault rifles. And um, by the way, uh, what this ban was, this ban was the assault, assault rifles ban. Because what they did was they banned all fully automatic assault weapons. So now, I have, like, if you get an AR-15 at Cabela's or your local gun shop, that's not a rifle. That's not. I mean, it's a rifle, but that's not a real. Um, that's not a real machine gun. That's not considered. A, I hate to break your balls, but yeah, that's not considered a real um, soldier's weapon because a real soldier's weapon fires off uh, multiple rounds, a matter of milliseconds. Now, that's not to say that single shot, you know, our uh, semi-automatics can't do the trick at all. Um, definitely not saying that. But 1934 was the real attack against the Second Amendment because the people, <clears throat> the people were not part, everyone in America was not part of the mob at this time. There are a lot of farmers that use these machine guns to uh, scare away uh, birds there's a lot more wildlife during this time, you know what I mean? Because things are a lot more freer. But um, what this really, really truthfully did was um, prevent, was the fir first prevention of, and first attack of the Second Amendment. Now, um, moving forward, uh, actually, you know, I'll, I'll read some more off of this screen. So by 1934, more than two dozen states passed gun control laws. West Virginia required gun owners to be bonded and licensed. Michigan mandated that the police approve gun buyers. Texas banned machine guns. And this is one of the things that were uh, being quoted, guys. This is out of the Waco News Tribune. This is 1934, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Why should, I, why should desperados, brazen outlaws of the period, be permitted to purchase these weapons of destruction? Does that does that sound like familiar to you, you know, at all? Because that honestly does to me. Let me read that off again. Like I said, this is the Waco News Tribune, in, uh, 1934. Why should desperados, brazen outlaws of the period, be permitted to purchase these weapons of destructions? This is a, you know, weapons of destruction. There it was. So you can see the psychologically programming back in even 1934. Ladies and gentlemen, and we're just, and you know, we're, like I said, we're going all the way up to 1995. I apologize, I'm getting my uh, sheets messed up here. And we're, always, and we're going all the way up to 1995, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so rather than a federal uh, federal ban on machine guns, the Roosevelt administration proposed taxing the higher-powered weapons virtually out of existence. It would place a $200 tax on the purchase of machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. The tax, equal to about 38000 today, was steep at a time when the average annual income was about 1780 A machine gun, of course, ought never to be in the hands of any private individual attorney general homer coming said at a house hearing so this is where the um you know uh, this is this is literally where the um and by the way general uh, homer cummings this man is literally uh fucking 34 a uh, 30 31st degree um freemason part of the maryland chapter ladies and gentlemen and uh, he's also been uh, multiple times. He's also been caught multiple times uh, during his uh, period uh, in the work at, at the White House. 
multiple times uh, caught beating uh, black men. Uh, one time, apparently, he hit, some, he hit some black guy apparently so hard that he cracked his skull. That man died, and uh, it was covered up. So these these people that are pushing these laws, like, you know, Roosevelt, they weren't the, you know, the starstruck, you know what I mean, the great men that we have been made to believe, you know what I mean? It was President Nixon that stated he hates the N-words, and it was during a phone call, and it wasn't, you know, until now, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can still look that up on the internet, you know what I mean? You can see exactly what he said, but yeah, you know, he basically stated, you know, um, once we pass this uh, welfare program, we're going to have those N-words eating out of our hands. They're always going to vote Democrat. And uh, that's because the, they took away the history. And, uh, it doesn't matter your race. People were, they were so jaded and they just forgot, like we just forgot. Because this history that I'm telling you, this is the type of history that they don't teach in school. Even in high school, they won't get into the fact. They won't tell you the reality of gun control. They won't tell you the people that led gun control. And then you come to find out when you do your research, well, God, man, these these people are the, these people have been doing the same thing ever since 1640. So the Democrat Party has literally been a cancer on us for so long. So once again, um, uh, a machine gun, of course, ought to never to be in the hands of any private individual. Attorney General Homer Cummings said at a House hearing, there is not the slightest excuse for it, not the least in the world, and we must, if we are going to be successful in this effort to suppress crime in America, take these machine guns out of the hands of criminal class. And, uh, oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, after the um, the pass of 1934, that actually helped the mob out at that time. And that's actually direct quote, direct quote by Lucky Luciano, quote, the 1934 pass was the best thing that happened to my family. And that's obviously because now he can, every, everyone's a victim, you know, the. Black community is a victim, you know, the white community is a victim. Everyone's up for games, especially for people that were running around at that time during uh, 1934 and well even past that. But now it's all free games for, you know, everyone to rob everyone else, you know. So in uh, 1968, the Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed. This about anti-gun journalist Robert Schur frankly admitted that the Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed not to control guns, but to control the poor. And like I said, uh, this was admitted by Robert Sherrill, frankly. He admitted that the Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed not to control guns, but to control the poor. The Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed not to control guns, but to control poor. And is as much as a majority of Congress did not want to do the former, but who were ashamed to show that their goal was the latter, the result was that they did neither. Now, um... They included, and they actually, and the, and the Democrats of this time actually included, and the Rhino Republicans, there's a few uh, Republicans during this time of 1968, one of them uh, being the president, um, a complete Rhino, and in their sick mind, in the devil's sick way of thinking, and, and in the devil's sick way of uh, manipulating the, th uh, the facts, they actually used the murder of Martin Luther King, which they knew at the time, the FBI uh, were the ones that... Uh, hired the hitman, hired the two snipers, and, uh, you know, 
took him out at that hotel. And same thing with uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, the FBI knew full well that they were completely infiltrated by the mafia, uh, specifically by the Gambino mafia and the Lucchese mafia. And they knew full well that their entire industry is completely infiltrated. And uh, not only that, they knew that the mafia had a hit on John F. Kennedy. But what can you say to the public? The mafia is so strong. They are so strong and they're um, that much in control of things to where they can kill a president. If you really think about it, there is no FBI. There is no way you can admit that to the people, to admit the, ma the mafia has become so strong that they can kill a standing president. And uh, there's been some people that have echoed this same thing uh, that I'm saying. I'm not saying the mob killed John F. Kennedy. I believe it was a group effort. But uh, well, that's, you know, a whole other segment for another day. But um, so let's keep on moving move forward. So in uh, 1988 in Maryland, this was another Saturday. Uh, it was, this was the fifth Saturday night special. This one was to, once again, ban inexpensive guns completely out of pricing away from poor people that could not afford Uh, the the twenty the $13,000 machine guns, you know. Now, um, I do want to get to this clip just real quick, guys. And, of course, this is a clip of uh, an ATF agent that uh, admits to being paid $150,000 to do absolutely nothing. And, uh, and he also admits to... Now, in the video, um, the man it basically admits to getting paid, like I said, to do absolutely nothing. And he also includes the fact that where ATF agents decide to speak out or they decide to do something that does not fit the status quo. And um, you'll see on the video, this guy is definitely not no um, uh, you know, saint. Uh, I, I think he's a total uh, piece of crap for just sitting there, you know, um, Knowing full well what's going on at the ATF, knowing full well that you're just taking all this money and being blissful about it, and you know, and, and pouting about it, and you know, it's just a smack in the face to the American people when we see this kind of stuff. But once again, this clip is from uh, 2010, and you'll literally hear his arrogance in there. Um, but I, I'm, I am going to state this: uh, I, he states at the end that he did he did this or he made these videos. Um, so Congress would uh, start investigation or investigating our oversight into uh, into uh, the ATF. Uh, but let's let's get to this clip now. This is what I affectionately refer to as the cage. I am uh, sitting here with an empty inbox and nothing to do. Here I am. Safeway sandwich. Little news on getting up on their current affairs. Um, I've had a few phone calls, personal phone calls that I've made, and uh, waiting for something to do. It's good money for not a lot of work, I guess. Being facetious, obviously. Just answered a couple friends' uh, personal emails. It's about ten thirty. Uh, took a few minutes, drove up and got some Taco Bell. That's been the highlight of the day so far. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, same thing as always. Uh, tomorrow's another day. Um, 150 grand a year, I guess I can't complain. I think I only fair to report that I did uh, attend to four to six pieces of property here in the afternoon, which uh, took at least 10 minutes of my time. 
The guy, the guy making it, I'm going to be honest, man, I mean, what a creep. I mean, he looks like a freaking weirdo. Like, he looks like he got the job because he was caught raping children. And the ATF were like, oh, hell yeah, we'll hire you for sure. Um, all jokes aside, it's, it's, it's just bad. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, um, I want to get uh, uh, keep it moving forward, guys. Now, in uh, 1988, uh, in Illinois, the poor citizen, uh, uh, there were poor citizens that were singled out for the gun ban in Illinois. And this is where it gets really, really terrible. And this is where it gets really, really pressed on. This is where the Democrats in America really, really start to go back to their roots back in the 1800s and the seven in, in the late 1700s, you know what I mean? I should say well before that too. But this is where the Democrats literally start going back to impose black code laws onto poorer communities. Now, they sing on neighborhoods, ladies and gentlemen. I have a story I want to get to, guys, along with this uh, with along with along this law. So, in uh, 1988 in Illinois, the, the Chicago Housing Authority and the Chicago Police Department enacted and enforced an official policy. This was called Operation Clean Sweep, which applied to all housing units owned and, uh, owned and operated by the CHA. The purpose was the confiscation of firearms and illegal and illegal narcotics and consisted of warrantless searches and a visitor exclusion policy, severally limiting the rights of CHA tenants to associate in their residence with their family, members, and other guests. Tenants had to sign in and out of the building to producing to the police or CHA officials photo ID. Relatives, including children and grandchildren, were not allowed to stay over, even on holidays. On CHA tenants were objected or attempted to interfere with these warrantless searches were arrested. And they were arrested on site, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and try to give you guys the uphill to thanks. So the fact of the matter is, and this is during when the crack epidemic was first surely striking, 
And if you don't know about this, the CIA were uh, bringing in um, crack with the Colombian drug cartels, and that's where you get famous people like Rick Ross, Rick Freeway Rocks, where he admits that he worked with the CIA um, bringing in drugs and specifically bringing them to poor neighborhoods. And this is all um, another part of Operation MK Ultra, and this is very true. Look it up. I'm, I'm not lying about this. There are other key figures involving this situation. But yeah, during the early 1980s and the late 1990s, it's still going on today with different drugs. But yeah, the CIA were highly involved into selling crack and making sure they put their own agents and hire um, their own and hire gang members that are on their third strike. So if they don't do what the FBI or the CIA tells them to do, you know, like right now we're just now finding out uh, thanks to um, thanks to officially unredacted um, FBI papers. Um, and I should say, thanks to the Freedom uh, Disclosure Act, um, I, I should say, thanks to the Freedom Disclosure Act, um, we were able to just, we're just now finding out that Pablo Escobar was actually um, a CIA operative. So, you know, the, the, the more you know, you know what I mean? The more, the more you know is the more you're going to get into, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, no, the ACLU filed a lawsuit seeking declaratory and an injunction relief on behalf of the CHA tenants against the enforcement of Operation Clean Sweep. The complaint was filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois Eastern Division. This was December 16, 1988. A consent decree was entered on November 30, 1989, in which the CHA and CPD agreed to abide by certain standards in which the scope and purposes of such emergency housing inspections were limited. But, of course, they weren't limited, ladies and gentlemen. The story I want to tell you guys about, and this story correlates with the laws they want to try to introduce. introduce. And they really, really fucked up when, um, excuse my language, I'm very sorry, but they really, really uh, messed up when a few Army Rangers uh, got involved. Uh, so Sergeant Bill Fork, he was an Army Ranger at Fort Lewis, Washington, when he purchased a cheap house in the rough uh, Tacoma neighborhood as an investment in 1989. Now, um, to protect his investment, um, he realized that there were gangs completely taking over the neighborhoods, all kind, all thanks to the FBI, you know, and them running their uh, drugs into the neighborhood and stuff like that. So, in an effort to protect his neighborhood, he started fighting back. He set up cameras at his house. Um, now, police and other, and, and he actually formed a community, uh, community na uh, neighborhood watches. He invited people over, and the gangs of the neighborhood uh, kept on threatening him. They shot at his house a couple of times. He uh, continued to uh, report on, uh, reported to the police. He continued to speak out because he did not want gangs ruining the neighborhood and his um, and his houses and you know and his house. Selling uh, these types of drugs and uh, being having inviting yourself uh, with that type of insanity, uh, you know, which we all know where that leads to now, at least, you know. But, um, and uh, he, he spoke at a city council and he and he and he told uh, the chief of police and he told the chief of police that the drug uh, epidemic in uh, this neighborhood is very truthfully um, wicked and we need to do something about it. And the chief of police actually took one of the only police units off of that, um, off of, off and out of their neighborhood. Now, um, as soon as that happened, they introduced, uh, um, they also, Washington and, um, 
uh, Tacoma um, introduced uh, some of the laws just like we saw, just like we see in um, Nineteen sixty, uh, nineteen sixty, uh, nineteen eighty-eight. I apologize. So, um, I'm sorry. I'm totally ruining the story. Uh, so, they took the only police unit out of their neighborhoods, uh, out of their neighborhood. Um, soon after, uh, a gang, uh, a gang shootout, uh, or a shootout did ensue with um, Sergeant. Uh, Sergeant Bill Fork and uh, a few of his other army rangers. And this story literally changed the way they look at, uh, you know, at, at least for a second. This this story changed the way they uh, looked at um, community, um, community outreach programs. Because, first of all, because it, it, they started because gangs started a fight with uh, uh, army folk. And uh, from what I'm hearing about, the military actually got involved in this case and told the police to, quote-unquote, F off, and you're not taking my soldiers anywhere. Now, the chief of police actually told, scolded and told uh, the men after the shootout that they should have waited for anything, unless anything was going to happen, they should have waited for the police to show up before they fired back at all. So, um, once again, the incident was a turning point for the city of Tacoma. It brought national attention to the gang issues in city streets and prompted residents to take a more active role in policing their neighborhoods. As of October 2020, the house flat or the house that folk and the rangers were defending is worth 447,000 according to real estate website Britain and the hilltop neighborhood that saw the outbreak of violence is one of Tacoma's quietest. So they definitely cleaned up their neighborhood, ladies and gentlemen, um, which uh, thank God for that. You know what I'm saying? It's a very good thing. But what I'm trying to say and the reason why I'm uh, just giving you the short just of that story. Uh, and once again, there was most and it wasn't just like a regular shootout. There were more than four or five, six, uh, you know, gang members with guns that were just, you know, firing at the soldiers. It was it was an actual shootout. Go look it up. Um, if you want to full read or uh, read the full story for yourself, just uh, type in that time Army Rangers got in a gunfight with Crips Street Gang. You know what I mean? And, and a whole and, and you'll have a, def a bunch of different accounts for it. You know, and it might even bring up the old um, uh, articles for you, ladies and gentlemen. But um, now in 1990 in Virginia, poor citizens were uh, were also singled out out of the gun ban. For now, U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia upheld a ban imposed by the Richmond Housing Authority on the possession of all firearms, whether operable or not, in public housing projects. The Richmond Tenants Organization had challenged the ban, arguing that such requirement had made the city's 14,000 public housing residents second-class citizens. Yep. And uh, so, and, and you know what? Like I said, ladies and gentlemen, these are the type of laws that they were doing back in you know the early 1800s, well before that into the 1900s. You know what I'm saying? It was always a Democratic Party. And uh, I wish I and I'm not and I'm not saying that the like once again I'm not saying that there were some Rhino Republicans that were on the bench too practicing eugenics and the extermination of another race. I am not saying that. But the majority of these gun control measurements, I've read them off to you as we've been going on, have constantly 
Democrat, Democrat. It was the Democrats that actually evolved into, or it was like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I was about to word that wrong. It was actually the slave owners that involved or evolved into what we now know as the Democratic Party. Um, if you look up uh, Nancy Pelosi's roots, she traces her roots all the way back to one of the biggest slave owners in America, apparently would literally kill slaves just to do it. So just, um, you know, just FYI, guys. Now, in, in 1994, uh, this is uh, when the president's, uh, was trying to, the President Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, um, uh, Bill Clinton, that is, the Clinton administration introduced H.R. 3838 in 1994 to ban guns in federal public housing, but the House Banking Committee rejected it. Similar legislations were filed in 1994 in the Oregon and Washington state legislations. This is coming from the Clinton Foundation, ladies and gentlemen. If you trace their roots right back, they come from some a bunch of satanic, Orwellian, incest-loving people. They're not good people, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm going to keep on going, guys. So in 1994 in Maine, there was another Poor Citizens Act. Portland uh, in Maine, gun ban in public housing struck down on April 5th, 1995. So this has always been about subjugation and keeping the poor singled out and keeping the poor just that, the poor. And not only that, you can tell the correlation of it wasn't just about taking the guns out of the house. It was also about taking the family apart and making sure that the man has no way to fight back. You know, and you do this, uh, you know, through hiding, hiding, you know, uh, hiding legislation that you pass through. You do this by just assuming authority or changing the way the Constitution is read. And you can literally see that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so let's uh, let's keep this going. And like I said, uh, oh, actually, oh, God, that was the last one. 1995. Well, what happened to that after that was in 2011, and that was the United States Patriot Act, where they made it legal, the Bush administration made it legal to drone American citizens. I'm not lying about that either. It's all in the Patriot Act. They made it legal to um, stop your bank account. So a lot of the things that, you know what I mean, we're hearing about now, these were all already legal through the Patriot Act. You know, they, they're able to, if they deem you a terrorist, they're able to lock you up in federal court. No law, no jury, no nothing. They don't have to tell anyone. Uh, if, uh, you're, you know, if they deem you a terrorist, they can use a drone on you. And that's why uh, Barack Obama laughed about it when he asked, and when he and when the reporter asked him if he'd ever use a drone on American citizens, and he simply says, "Well, I suggest, well, I suggest, uh, you know, if you're hanging around those people, America will use drones." And then he just smiled at the camera. Sick, sadistic people. And by the way, uh, Barack Obama was not black; he was white. Look it up. Uh, if you look up some of his high school pictures, it amazes you. It looks like, uh, literally, it looks like a Dave Chappelle skit. But ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to bring, this is going to bring me to the end of this broadcast. Once again, guys, I really appreciate everything um, you're doing. Every, I'll appreciate every single one of my listeners that have been here um, ever since the jump of this stuff when I was just making um, articles on uh, Facebook. And all the new listeners that are just coming on now, Lord have mercy, I've been realizing how much more new listeners I've been getting out in Argentina. And I have a lot of uh, listeners out in Germany. I'm, I'm very, very surprised. Well, not really, though, with the history that I go through. 
and a lot of listeners right here in America. Either way it goes, I appreciate every single one of you. Thank you very much. May God be with you all. And always remember, it's not your job to be nice to everyone, but it is your job to be kind. It's not your job to accept everything, but it is your job to tolerate some things. So stay strong, stay armed, and I'll see you out there, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you out there. Everything. What have I become?